Welcome to Beyond Travesti, a podcast where I talk to trans and gender diverse opera and music theater professionals about old constructs, present concerns, and future visions of our individual and collective work. I'm Bryce McClendon. I'm a countertenor, writer, educator, and creative consultant based in New York City. Today, my guest is male soprano Elijah McCormick. We'll talk about how Eli has navigated being a transgender singer in the traditionally conservative space of oratorio and concert. If I have negative experiences in the spaces where I work, it's not usually so much, you know, people being like openly transphobic or anything. Sure. But any negative experiences I have are mostly related to like a sense of uncertainty or mm. like presumptions on the part of other people. Mm-hmm. One of the most important things as a performer is to like be present in what you're doing and be present in your body. And it's mm-hmm. harder to do that when you're not comfortable. We'll talk about how Eli got interested in historical performance and in particular, the legacy of the castrati. A sexual minority that is made a spectacle, often sexualized, outside of norms, because this was still never like technically legal or like mm-hmm. church approved, certainly. Mm-hmm. Their success was often relegated to the realm of performance. A couple of episodes, I talked about a resource that I was working to develop in partnership with Danielle Wright of Opera Moto and Catherine Goforth and Dorian Block, who have both been guests from Beyond Travesti previously, a professional directory of trans, non-binary, and gender-diverse opera and music theater professionals. I'm happy to announce that the survey to submit to be included in this professional directory is now available via the Operamoto website. We will link to it in the show notes. This isn't only a resource for singers. There are people who work in a number of disciplines related to opera and music theater, and so it is going to be fully indexable and available sometime in January once we get it all together. Super excited to share it with you. Hope you'll submit if it would be useful to you. And we have a lot of exciting conversations going on in order to advance this resource and make it something that companies can use and our community can use to connect together. And now for my conversation with Eli. Today, my guest is male soprano Elijah McCormick. Elijah performs concert and opera across the United States and beyond. He recently won the Meyerson Zanger Award for second place in the Oratorio Society of New York solo competition. He has performed as a soloist with organizations like Seraphic Fire, Washington Bach Consort, Dallas Bach Society, American Bach Soloists, and Ensemble Altera. Opera credits include appearances with Haymarket Opera and Illumine Arts Miami. Also well-versed in new music, Eli has participated in several world premieres with The Crossing and also premiered the role of Belle Cohen in Benjamin Wenzelberg's Night Town with Lowell House Opera. His 2023 season sees his return to Washington Bach Consort, Ensemble Altera, The Crossing, and Seraphic Fire, as well as his debut with N-Series and also his international debut as soprano soloist in Bach's Christmas Oratorio at the Leipzig Gewandhaus. 
So Eli, thank you for chatting with me today. I'm excited that you're tuning in to record this all the way from Deutschland. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I always start off by asking what brought you to classical singing in the first place and what keeps you involved in classical singing? Well, I've been involved in classical music to some degree from a really early age. I grew up in a very musical family. We were always in church choir. My dad played in a local symphony. He was a violist. But church choir was a really big part of my life from a really young age. So I grew up uh, in kind of a traditional like royal school of church music style treble choir where we were singing all these tutor anthems and whatnot. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I, I continued with that into voice lessons in middle school and high school. And uh, I didn't think for a long time that I was going to pursue a career in classical music. Sure. I came to that after my senior year of college or like towards the end of my senior year of college mm. when my alma mater's music department yeah. uh, got a donation to put on a fully staged opera and they chose a baroque opera okay yeah, yeah and so after that i went to do my master's degree at indiana university what keeps me coming back to it is i think one of the things that has always attracted me to performing in general and just like singing i'm not very i'm not very great at talking to people I, I like to I don't like to speak off the cuff very much I, I grew up like kind of being one of those kids who like really didn't talk to anybody sure. I was like really shy and really quiet I think being like a performer is a way to get attention I mean, maybe that sure. sounds like very, like a very shallow reason but like it kind of, it's, a, it's a way to express myself that that um doesn't require like a lot of the things that I find really difficult in a lot of social mm. interaction interesting um, yeah. so that's really fun. And also just uh, in terms of sort of the more macro, like the art form, I don't know, there's there's a lot of things in classical music that I relate to and that I feel suited to artistically as an individual. I mean, like I said, I, I grew up in a kind of typical Episcopal church choir, sure. and that cultivated um, an interest in a certain kind of repertoire for from a fairly young age. Yeah. And so as I grew up, I, I developed a, a certain kind of voice that has turned out to lend itself really well to like Baroque music sure. and, and certain areas of new music and whatnot, choral yeah, singing yeah. And, and that kind of thing. Um, so it's something that like, I don't, I don't feel like I can do anything in the world of classical music. Like I'm not a Strauss singer sure. or a Verity singer really particularly, I don't think. Sure. Um, but vocally, I, I find that a lot of, um, I feel able to express a lot of like Baroque music in particular very uh, easily. It feels very accessible to me. Um, And also as a field, I think historical performance is seeing a lot of really exciting progress and innovation that uh, is really intriguing to me. Cool. Yeah. So you've clearly had a good amount of success as a concert singer and oratorio singer. You won an award from Oratorio Society of New York. You've sung as a soloist and an ensemble member with a number of prestigious choirs and festivals. So I'm curious how it's been for you navigating these spaces as a transgender singer. In my experience, many of those spaces have tended to be a little more conservative, either because of audiences or standard rehearsal practices or, you know, where they're based. Has that proven to be true for you at all? What experiences do you have you had, either positive or negative? And what do you think companies should do more of to include and support transgender performers? 
Yeah, that's definitely real. I, I think it's just the classical music in general is sure. such a gender normative space. It kind of gets into this feedback loop of like, well, our, our audiences, we feel are older and therefore more like, I guess, traditional is the perception. Mm. And we don't want to mess with that. We don't want to bring up politics to our donors or anything like that. If I have negative experiences in the spaces where I work, it's not usually so much, you know, people being like openly transphobic or anything. Sure. But any negative experiences I have are mostly related to like a sense of uncertainty or mm. like presumptions on the part of other people. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I tend to assume like I'm I'm not on testosterone and I I don't pass so to speak sure. um so i tend to i tend to assume that wherever i am whoever i'm talking to even if i haven't like brought up being transgender i tend to assume i've already been clocked kind of so a big part of it is just like not knowing what to expect from any yeah. given person i think it's true that a lot of more especially more venerable organizations would just prefer to acknowledge things like that as little as possible mm -hmm. um they want to stick purely to their artistic mission they don't want to mess with their audiences or their donors or risk any any of that um and that's fair, but it, in some ways it can make it difficult to know what kind of a space you're coming into. Mm. If it's going to be affirming or neutral mm -hmm. or actively unwelcoming or like weird. And exactly how much they're willing to defer to mm. like things like presumed audience opinion on things like how their performers look physically. Sure. So, I mean, I personally experienced a lot of misgendering of me as an individual, as an individual. And to an extent, I expect that like I've I've chosen this life. Yeah. I knew what I was getting into. And I'll, I'll correct someone in the moment. I'm like fairly comfortable with that. Now, I wasn't always. Interestingly, I, I guess you could file this under bad experiences. <laughs> um, I've been in some situations where like, I, I won't name names, but like of being misgendered most sometimes by leaders in like organizations that really do actively try to protect yeah. the image of like inclusivity and yeah. progressivism and whatnot mm. and who in fact were using my transness for publicity mm -hmm. um and in, the, in that situation it was like okay well what are, what are we here for now that representation is becoming sort of a marketing thing and is becoming better pr like now we have to contend with like tokenization and things like yeah, that as organizations diversify their rosters and in a sense, that's still progress. Like, at least it is marketable, I guess, to to have a diverse roster. But you, you still also need to treat people like people. I mean, there's like passive misgendering by section or by voice type. Which sure, is, yeah, that uh, happens so an issue much. That's getting a lot of conversation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and like things like gender dress codes. It's like yeah. the things that people don't always think about it too much because it's so entrenched in the culture. But like mm -hmm. basic things like that can cause a lot of uncertainty for a lot of people. Is there any sort of advice you could share for people who might be in a situation where they're like, I might get hired by this place, but I don't really know what to expect. Like, and I'm not sure what kind of questions I should ask or like if there's anything that I should do in advance to make sure that I'm going to feel good or just even personally, like how do you think about mm -hmm. like what to do in advance when you are living in this place where you just like surely don't know what to expect to kind of protect yourself and your peace? Yeah. I mean, I think historically, like at this point, a lot of the organizations I work with are, are organizations that I have already worked with. Like sure. I, I'm getting rehired. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so I don't have to continue having those conversations. Yeah. Um, I think historically my, my practice has been, you know, wait until the contract is signed. Sure. Uh, because if we're, if we're talking about a, a concert contract, then, um, you know, asking, asking questions about, concert dressed or whatever should not cause a problem usually like the emails about dress code and whatnot 
come a little bit later, like fairly close to the performance. That's, you know, something sure. that their admin person is is figuring out and, and sending out to the performances. I've sent emails like clarifying things because there are things that some people just like, I think just don't think about. I feel like it might be less of a problem in like early music ensembles where there are so many counter tenors. Mm. Like if you describe a dress code by section and there's like one person who's the odd one out who doesn't match the gender or the perceived gender of everybody else in the section, yeah. like are you envisioning that they match the rest of their section? How much are you assuming sure. like about what people are comfortable with? So I, I think I have straight up emailed the admin person of, of at least one organization back and said like, can we just call the dress code gender neutral? Can we say it like where one of these yeah. options? Yeah. Um, whatever people are most comfortable with. I don't think that's a huge imposition as a request. I think a lot of um, some organizations, again, particularly older organizations where like they have a fairly entrenched image, they, they're kind of afraid of audience reaction and whatnot. But having been in organizations where like they have changed up their dress code, like they've gone from requiring everyone to wear like tuxes and tails and whatnot mm-hmm. to like a more laid back dress mm-hmm. code, like, yeah, sometimes audiences gripe about it a little bit, but then they get over it. And yeah. sometimes I, I think there are a few things that I think we need to just like brace for a little bit and expect people to get over. Policing what performers look like in general sure. is it's it's slowly on its way out. And yeah. I, I think it should be because, it, you know, it's not I about agree. that what we do. And it's the most important thing. One of the most important things as a performer is to like be present in what you're doing and be present in your body. And it's mm-hmm. harder to do that when you're not comfortable. Yeah. So in October, you performed and toured with an organization called Chamber Queer for their concert. I, Baroque Queer or Baroque Queer. <laughs> no, I'm not sure exactly how yeah. it is that you all like to say it. I was lucky enough to attend the concert in New York City before you went to the Early Music America Summit. And I'd love to just hear a little about how you got involved with that project and what the experience was like on tour and rehearsing and performing this repertoire, which for you, I would assume is familiar, but alongside queer, trans, gender diverse collaborators, were there things that stood out to you in this process that were distinct from some of the cis-led processes you've been in? Like, how would you how would you talk about that experience or, or differentiate it from some of the more standard things you do? Yeah, a lot of ways. I actually don't remember how I got in touch with the organizers of mm. Chamber Queer to begin with. I, I think we just became aware of each other online the way that trans people in classical music tend to do. Yeah, le- legit, um, yeah. I was going to be in one of their like pride performances in the summer of 2022, but then I got COVID, so I couldn't do that. Gotcha. But I kind of became attached to this tour that we did, starting in Brooklyn and then going to Boston and then to Maine, because at the end of that, we were doing another project in Maine with another presenting organization. Oh, okay. Um, I don't need to go into detail about that sure, necessarily, yeah, but sure. essentially at some point I had made noises about knowing enough people to theoretically mount an all trans messiah like orchestra and all. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, all right. And so I became creatively involved in this project called Messiah Multiplied that we did with Classical Uprising in Portland. Uh, and from there, I, I tagged on to their, the rest of their tours. Chamber Queer is not just about like having a, a queer friendly or a queer centric environment. It's like 
really about holistically transforming the experience mm-hmm. and like lowering barriers that can make people feel excluded. Mm-hmm. So there's like, there's leaving behind dress codes um, mm-hmm. and also gravitating away from like religious venues and more formal venues sure. in general. Yeah, sure. But also like having the rehearsals be like collaboratively directed between all the performers. So like no mm-hmm. single person is running the show mm-hmm. and also like doing away with a lot of pressure to like that we feel in classical music to like be a perfectionist as well yeah so like in addition to it just being very refreshing to make music in a queer normative space where like there was no question of respect or affirmation and there wasn't pressure to project a certain image or anything I felt like I could bring something to the process I felt like I could say that certain things weren't working for me um and I felt like if I if I made a mistake or like I had a bad day then like that would be okay. A big deal for someone like me who's, who's fairly non-confrontational. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as a result, I like I felt very present, and I felt like you were an audience member, and I was not, mm-hmm. <laughs> or at least I, I was for some of the time. But I felt like the performances, like they felt really energized, and like I didn't get tired of of watching and hearing the mm-hmm. instrumental pieces or the other pieces that we mm-hmm. did that that I wasn't in. So it just felt really authentic and really comfortable on on a lot of levels. And I, I think that has attracted people to their performances. Like I, I noticed that in Brooklyn, the audience was quite young. I'm interested to see what else. Like I'm not involved in chamber period in organizational capacity. Sure. I'm interested to see what else they do and what other organizations like them might do. Tell me about Early Music America. I know you did some workshops. Were you involved in that at all? Yes. I attended some of the workshops earlier in the day that were on a similar theme. uh, And there were some really good conversations happening. A lot of people who are like really passionate about having these conversations and and doing the work um, to make the field more inclusive and to like, um, there were a lot of conversations about like access and inclusivity and like breaking down barriers and uh, paying reparations and whatnot. Um, cool. and so, uh, what we did was kind of later in the day, we did a performance followed by a workshop. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a lot of it was kind of building on a lot of the conversations that had happened earlier on the day. Some of the people at our workshop had already been at other workshops earlier. Mm-hmm. It was a very organic experience. We, we kind of gave people a, a case study about sure. like how an organization might want to reach new audiences. Yeah. Um, and again, a lot of that came back to like questions of access and like what makes people feel like they can't engage with this kind of thing. Yeah. So things like pay what you want, things like having dress codes. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned a few times that day, I think that like when I invite my friends who like don't do classical music to come and see something that I'm doing, mm-hmm. a lot of the time, the first question that they ask is like, am I supposed to dress up? Like what do yeah. I have to wear? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I don't want people to feel like that. Um, yeah. like, I mean, if you want to dress up, I guess you can, but uh, I don't think people should feel like they have to, or like they're going to get kicked out. Of yeah. Like the admissions expectations, just jeans. period. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't dress up when I go to classical music. I'm not on stage. Listen, I dress up. <laughs> I wear a whole costume. That's fair enough, but I know. I'm, no, no, no. I feel I'm you. I feel block. you. Yeah, I feel you. No, it makes sense. It makes sense. I've read before, you've said in conversations that you became interested in the large body of castrato repertoire when you were uh, in school at Skidmore College in your senior year, I guess, before you went to IU. And 
There's a mm-hmm. complex history around castrati in opera history, like how much agency they had. They were big stars. They were desirable to the public. So I was wondering if you would talk about that history a little bit and what got you interested in learning about them in particular. And then what resonances do you think there are for us when we look at that history through our contemporary lens of gender? Because obviously it's very different from 18th century Europe. Does it give us any guidance or any sort of um, information or ideas about how we could approach studying and performing this music as queer and trans singers in 2023? Uh, My second master's recital at IU in the uh-huh. Historical Performance Institute uh, was all castrato repertoire. Actually, I think there was a little bit of like treble child and um, trouser repertoire in there as well. Sure, but it was yeah. a it was a focus on kind of Baroque era gender paradigms. Yeah, um, because it's very weird to us as modern audiences. It's kind of paradoxical that like these individuals, which we would consider emasculated, which yeah. were emasculated, yeah. um, were always cast as like heroes and yeah. gods and these like these sort of typical masculine figures as we would see them. Mm-hmm. Um, but they became these huge celebrities and they were like so desirable and such a spectacle. Mm-hmm. Um, so like it is spectacle, just a grown man singing treble is still unexpected, was expe- unexpected back then. That's mm-hmm. one thing. And due to not going through natural puberty, they grew in ways that, for instance, allowed them to develop like unusual lung capacity, mm-hmm. resulting in, in vocal ability that most people just don't have. But also, people in European Baroque society didn't think of gender the same way that we do now, exactly, mm-hmm. although like modern ideas of gender are in some ways descendants of those ideas. Sure. Um, but femininity was associated with qualities of like sensuality with sexuality. Mm-hmm. And in some ways a feminine man or a boy awkwardly uh, mm-hmm. would have been considered like kind of an ideal. So you get a, a man with the sensuality of a woman, but you don't need to deal with a woman in the process, which is mm-hmm. good if you're a misogynist. Um, so, <laughs> which many were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so that kind of thing goes back to like ancient Greece, like the sexualization of, of, pre-adolescent boys and whatnot mm-hmm. um but a castrato never would have gained the male humors that would make him properly like strong and masculine and all mm-hmm. that he retains the feminine qualities all his life so that's potentially sexually attractive to men and women mm-hmm. and that among other things uh, contributes to kind of the the intrigue that made castrati so interesting to people yeah. so interesting parallels a sexual minority that is made a spectacle often sexualized outside of norms because this was still never like technically legal or like Mm -hmm. church approved certainly Mm -hmm. their success was often relegated to the realm of performance like if they weren't successful there they were out of luck there are stories about like people just kind of being a little too like seeing all these successful castrati and being a little bit too eager to have their own child go Mm. and join them and make lots of money and then Mm. these poor eunuchs like hanging around as beggars because they can't make it. And yet the, it became a niche and one that resulted in this massive body of repertoire and this kind of cultural craze. And there, they were a class of people that wasn't necessarily regarded as fully male or female, that yeah. some people may have still considered freakish or ungodly. Yeah. So uh, yeah, no wonder a lot of trans people seem to relate to this repertoire and sure. are interested in reclaiming it as a transgender experience. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
when you started to get interested, did was it a, more about the historical elements or was it purely informed by the music? I guess what excites you from from both perspectives? Definitely the music to begin with. Mm-hmm. Like I said, the, the first opera role I ever learned was in Cersei. It was it was Arsamenes in yeah. Cersei. Um and it just it just felt like it fit me so well. Like I, I felt connected to the character. It was something that was both gender affirming and also just like fit my voice really well. And so that was just kind of the baseline. Like I historical performance departments are it tend to be mostly graduate disciplines. Yeah. Uh, anyway so but i like i came in and i was not the only person in my cohort who came from not an undergraduate music degree sure. uh, but i had a lot of imposter syndrome i had never taken just like a general music history survey mm, in my life okay. um yeah. and i still haven't actually wow i just <laughs> i studied a lot for my entrance exams and i passed them and i went right into the specialization so i guess technically i i have taken a, a general survey of western music i just put self, myself through yeah self-taught yeah. <laughs> yeah self-directed um yeah in terms of the actual like historical and like performance practice elements like yeah massive imposter syndrome until mm-hmm. i actually like mm-hmm. got to my master's degree and started reading the treatises myself and then and then a whole world opened up of weird, fun weird stuff i could do but yeah to, to begin with it was it was the operatic repertoire and just like just kind of a, a more yeah, I, I guess a more basic connection that I felt to it. Yeah, no, for sure. What of what you have done in in um, your performance career, like what are maybe some of the highlights in terms of roles or, or repertoire you've done? And then what are some like things you really want to do? My favorite thing tends to just be like the most recent thing that I've done. Sure, fair. Um, yeah, fair. Which in... In this case, is is worth talking about because it was I performed professionally in Germany for the first time. Oh wow! Yeah, uh, congrats. Little over a little over a week ago in Leipzig, okay. listening to the Weinox Oratorium. Um, yeah, European debut. And, uh, Come on. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, and it was actually it was actually really nice. Uh, people were very sweet to my uh, my non German speaking ass. Um, yeah, okay. I good. don't. Yeah, that's really intimidating. <laughs> I, I can I can understand <laughs> I can understand okay, but I, I can't uh, really speak very well. Sure. I really need to work on that a lot more. Yeah. Um, but people were very sweet, and, and also um, it was also very nice that someone from the chorus came up to me afterwards and was like, "Hey, you know, there are a lot of people. There are a lot of queer people in the chorus, and Leipzig is actually a really queer uh, city, and we, yeah. we enjoy seeing the representation in the soloists. Amazing, amazing. Um, so that was really nice. That's really kind. Um, I really enjoyed the the tour with Chamber Queer. Mm-hmm. It was a lot. It lasted a while. It was a lot of travel, but mm-hmm. like just had a really good time with the people. Yeah. With the program. Yeah. I, I love doing things in kind of less conventional settings and sure. like reaching people that maybe ordinarily wouldn't, you know, go to yeah. a big concert hall or whatever. I feel like I say this every time I talk about it, but I, I would really like to one day maybe perform like. Um, you know, a primo wobo, like a, a a proper the proper lead in a handle aria. Yeah. I've been uh, I've been a, a secondo wobo a yeah. couple times, yeah. um, and children in operas several times. Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I can not, imagine it's like the child gambit a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um. I, and those have been some of my favorite things that I've done. Like I I loved doing amore and balletto with yeah. Haymarket Opera yeah. last year. Yeah. Um. I loved doing Turn of the Screw with Illuminarts in Miami. That was like one of my favorite productions I ever did. But it would be um it would be pretty cute to play an adult sometime. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Just uh, hasn't. 
for sure. Hasn't so much come up yet, but we'll yeah. see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, so tell us what's coming up. What What's on the calendar soon that you're excited about? I, I actually keep getting uh, my upcoming like spring season keeps getting busier because I keep getting called to sub in for things that I was worst problems, on the roster for. Worst problems to have. <laughs> yeah. Oh, in March, um, singing a French program. I'm on the roster for a French program with the Washington Bach Consort. Oh, cool. That's not like super outlandish or anything, but I feel like a lot of people don't perform French Baroque that often. So yeah, I'm excited no, about sure it. Don't. I really like yeah, you know, cool. Charpentier and whatnot. But really, the thing that's going to take up a lot of my time uh, in the spring is going to be an opera with IN series in DC. Okay. So they're doing Monteverdi's Ulysses. Mm-hmm. And uh, I am singing Telemachus, who in this production yeah. is a treble. Yeah. Uh, that's Odysseus's son, Ulysses's son. They're doing it as a collaboration with a South Asian dance company, I believe. And they're also, they're commissioning like new madrigals in Vietnamese, uh, like written in the style of Baroque madrigals. I'm very excited to see how that goes. That's going to be in like late, late May, early June. Yeah. That's super exciting. I love that opera too, just Mm -hmm. as like in the, in the trifecta of Monteverdi's. I think that one's really underappreciated by people. Yeah. I've not done that one before. I'm excited for you. Well, thank you for chatting with me. It's been so lovely just getting to know you a little bit and and hearing some of the things you're up to and some of the things you think. I wish you all the best with your upcoming season and I'm I'm super grateful you spent some time talking with me. Yeah. That's all for this episode and thanks for listening. Beyond Travesti is produced, recorded, and edited entirely by yours truly and fully subscriber-funded. The best way to support this effort is to become a subscriber to The Bryce is Wrong on Substack at brycemcclendon.substack.com. All of the proceeds go to honorariums for my guests. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at Beyond Travesti, or you can follow me at The Bryce is Wrong. And I'd love to hear any feedback or thoughts from this month's conversation. If you'd like to share them, you can get in touch at BryceMcClendon at Substack.com. Until next time, much love and much care. <laughs>